so you got your Bibles, you've turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me, uh, I'm just going to ask you a question, a little Bible geography for a moment this morning before we get started here. So where is Solomon's temple located? Jerusalem? Any other thoughts on where it's located? Israel, yeah. But the, the most obvious answer to where Solomon's temple is located is, duh, on the side of his head. Man, you guys are like me. You're overthinking. You were just overthinking that right there. All right, so that's the bad dad joke for today. So we are moving forward in 2022. God is calling us out of complacency, out of place of comfort, and into uh, a renewed fire and energy to pursue him at some new levels in prayer and worship in our faith. We have uh, uh, seen through the launch of this series, launching into this new year, that God has called us to look forward, to dream again, to dream his dreams, his big dreams, which then calls faith to move forward, which is what we talked about last week. We've talked about as we kicked off our 21 days, praying forward, the power that God uh, places within a praying heart and what he does through prayer. And today we're going to talk about giving forward. Now, don't tune me out because, well, we just have to talk about it. I mean, God's Word talks so much about the aspect of giving, both Old and New Testament. Jesus talked more about giving than he did heaven or hell. You can look it up. You can read it. You probably have and didn't catch it. But the Bible talks a lot about giving, and here's what I believe God is speaking to us as Victory Family Church, is that as we are planning on moving forward, we need to plan on being on the same page God is on when it comes to what he wants to do, which is resources. So let me also preface this. I have not taught on giving in quite some time, which for that, I ask for your forgiveness because that robs all of us of some opportunities of what God wants to do when we release ourselves with the spirit of generosity. I've not encouraged us in that in quite some time, uh, though I believe wholeheartedly in giving and then in the principle of the tithe. We'll talk more about that. But let me just preface this by saying we are not in trouble, okay? The ship's not going down. That's not what this is. This is not a, uh, a bailout message, start bailing water or give more or whatever. Uh, last year, from what I'm able to tell so far, I haven't dug real deep into it just yet, but what I can tell early on is that closing out last year, 2021, financially, we're healthy. We're not, uh, we're not sinking. We're not going. So this is not one of these appeals to say we got to bail ourselves out. No, no, no. This is simply, as you know, I am a teacher of God's Word. If you've been around Victory Family any length of time, and I try to the best of my ability to teach the whole counsel of God's Word. By the way, some of you are wondering, when will we finish the Gospel of Mark? We will kick back into Mark in February, and we'll pick back up, and I think it's Mark chapter 7 or 8 as we've been going verse by verse there. We will get back to that uh, in February. So this is not a bailout message. This is simply I want to share with you some truths from God's Word that have to do with the principles of stewardship. God has made us managers of His resources. He started it from the beginning. When He put Adam and Eve on the planet, what did He tell them to do? Rule the garden. Manage the garden. Everything is yours, Adam. You get to name the animals. All the trees are yours except just the one that reminds you that I am God and you're not. Because he had given man such authority over all of the resources of the garden. So he made Adam a manager. He made him a steward. And he's given that same privilege to all of us in his kingdom. With uh, the economy changing as it is, if you got gas anywhere that I got gas on Thursday, you paid $3.09 a gallon, and we see that just increasing. We see inflation. They tell us that uh, last year expenses on just household goods and necessities increased by about 7% in costs. Uh, we see those things happening. A lot of people panic. A lot of people become fearful. Uh, I have this resolve that, that God's economy doesn't change with man's economy. And when man's economy is changing, I can trust God's economy. Now, to trust God's economy means I've got to tap into. I've got to tap into his economy. So what does his word say about his economy? 
How do I become a part of his so that $3.09 gas doesn't send me over the edge? I got to find out what God's word says. Now, this is not going to be an exhaustive study this morning. You've been around here long enough, 26 years now, or within that 26-year period that Leisha and I have had the privilege to be your pastors, you've heard me teach full-length series, six, eight-week series on giving and tithing and that kind of deal. This is just one message. Uh, I figure the Cowboys aren't playing today, so we got a few extra hours, so I'm going to try to, I'm just kidding, I am only kidding. I'm just going to give you a, 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 a taste, just a taste today is all we get. God's economy operates off of the unchanging law of sowing and reaping. And when we talk about the law of the tithe, some people say, well, tithing is, is not New Testament because it's Old Testament law. Well, let's keep in mind, one, that Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to put his life into it. But I'll give you this fact that uh, the word tithe is not used in the New Testament other than at the moment when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees because they were, they were willing to, to do certain things uh, like give their tithes to the Lord, but then they were rebuking people and rejecting people. And he said, no, 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 you can't, you can't trample on people and think you're pleasing God just because you bring your tithe of your mint and your spices and everything else to the Lord. He says this, he said, continue doing what you're doing, but stop treating people like this. Start honoring and valuing people at the same time. So, but there is this principle, there is this unchanging, and I'm going to use the word law. In the New Testament church that we are all a part of now in this generation, we don't like the word law because we think of, we think of religion, we think of ritual, we think of works, and so we don't like the word law. But, but I'm not talking about Old Testament covenant law, the Ten Commandments and all that. What I'm talking about when I say the word law, I'm talking about a principle. You see, we don't cringe when we hear the term law of gravity, do we? What we know is meant is that just doesn't change. If Tom and I jump out of an airplane, we're not going up. We will, but we will go down first. <laughs> and then Jesus will take us up to be with him forever. But we're going to go down. We're going to fall. The law of gravity, what goes up, must. It always will come back down. So we don't cringe at that. So don't cringe at this law of sowing and reaping. It's just one of these things God has put into creation that is an unchanging law. The word principle could be used, but law gives it a firmer understanding that it is God's deal and it's unchanging. So let's talk a little bit about sowing and reaping. So we're all around Texas here. You go out to West Texas, you get a West Texas cotton farmer. West Texas cotton farmer, God has created cotton seeds so that cotton can grow so that people can have clothes to come to church in, right? So you cotton farmer, he takes one cotton seed, tosses it in the ground, and it's going to take about 160 days. He plants cotton seed. Within about 160 days, he's going to be able to start combining his harvest of cotton, which is now multiplied. In fact, they tell us that on average, a cotton seed, it takes about 160 days for it to, uh, to germinate and, and be ready for harvest. So what's that, about four months, a little over four months or so, five months. Um, but when a seed is planted, one cotton seed produces anywhere from six to 20 bowls of cotton. You ever seen a cotton plant? You, I know we've all over Texas, we've seen them. And you see the little bowls of cotton that, that they pop up, and then you got the little cotton ball right in the middle of it. tells us that uh, one seed can produce anywhere from 6 to 20 of those, and each bowl produces about 45 more seeds inside it. Sowing, reaping, multiplication. Watch what happens. So let's just say one cotton seed produced a bowl with six, uh, a, plant, uh, a plant with six bowls on it. It's got 45 seeds in it. You can take those 45 seeds and you can replant some of them, but now you've got more cotton. You can sell some of them to somebody else who says, I like this cotton business. I want to get in on it. And you can take some of it and you can feed your cattle so they can grow so you can slaughter one of them and have a nice Texas barbecue while you're waiting for the cotton harvest, right? It just all comes around, sowing and reaping. But let's say you take one bowl. It's got a 45 perhaps seeds in it. And you, you plant one of those seeds, or you plant all six of the, those bowls, you replant them, you're going to end up in the next harvest with each bowl having over 270 seeds. 
you've just multiplied your seed, right? How about wheat? Wheat farmers out in uh, West Texas, they plant one grain of wheat. It grows about eight heads of grain. Each, grain, uh, each head of grain has about 40 seeds in it. Eight heads of grain, you plant those again with those 40 seeds, you're going to get 320 more seeds of grain in the next harvest. You plant those, you see what's happening? It's multiplying exponentially. Not just two times two, but two times 240. I love the watermelon. Anybody like watermelon? You can eat watermelon, right? One watermelon seed produces anywhere from two to four watermelons. Each watermelon, a good-sized watermelon, can have on average right at about 200 seeds. So one watermelon seed just produced two melons, 400 seeds. Again, you can sell some of those seeds to somebody who wants to get in on the watermelon gig, or you can plant them. But for every, if you, if you harvest two melons with 400 seeds and you went ahead and planted all 400 of those seeds for the next season, you're going to get 800 watermelons. Watch how the math works. 800 watermelons is going to produce 160,000 more watermelon seeds. You will have watermelon out your ears. You know what you can now do? Sell a bunch of watermelons. You can plant some more watermelons. And you could even help somebody out who needs to grow watermelons but doesn't have any seeds. you got more than you know what to do with. It's God's unchanging law of sowing and reaping. And it's a, it's a principle that is given throughout the kingdom of God, in every facet of the kingdom of God. Nature, you sow, you reap. Spiritually, Paul would tell us in the New Testament, if you sow to the sin nature, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. But we're going to see this morning, he also tells us that if you sow into the kingdom of God in a financial way, you reap from God in financial blessing. Watch this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you've already turned there, beginning in verse number 6. Watch how this principle of sowing and reaping is a New Testament principle given right here. Paul writes and he says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves, say it with me, a cheerful giver. Look at your neighbor, make sure they're smiling while the pastor is talking about giving today. Verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, in other words, having all that you need at all times, you may abound in every good work. What is a good work? That which God gives you to do in his name for him. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply those grains of wheat, those bowls of cotton, and those melon seeds. He will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now you say, okay, maybe he's talking to a bunch of farmers that day at the church at Corinth. He's talking spiritually about giving. He's talking about receiving collections. If you read the whole chapter, he's, he's talking about raising money for some of the missionary churches, that missions churches that he has started and is going to be starting. But verse 11 helps us understand it is a principle of spiritual, financial, God's economy. Verse 11 says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Paul says when you learn to sow into the work of God's kingdom, that's going to bring thanksgiving. People are going to be refreshed. People are going to be blessed. They're going to be brought into the kingdom. They're going to come into the kingdom light and the kingdom life in Christ because you have understood God's economy of sowing and reaping. Giving produces a harvest. It's an unchanging law of God. Now, I'm a, I'm a proponent of the fact that we don't give to get. We give as worship. But the privilege that comes with that is God says, because you will honor me, I will bless you. But I don't give. Leisha and I don't give, bring the Lord's tithe to him every two weeks when we get paid because we want to receive back. 
We give because we view it as an act of our worship to the one who has provided so faithfully for us. So we're going to look then also at another verse of Scripture now in 1 Kings. Let me set 1 Kings 17 up for you for a moment here this morning. We're going to see that in times of hardship for the people of God, well, for the, for the nation of God who has rejected God, there's going to come a drought. There's going to be a great famine in the land. It's going to be a hardship. And followers of God, including the great prophet Elijah, are going to be affected by it. But we're going to see that this principle of sowing and reaping, even in times of hardship, God proves himself faithful. So we have Elijah, the prophet of God. He is getting very troubled in his heart because King Ahab and Jezebel are moving the people of Israel further from the worship of Jehovah God and into the worship of a false god called Baal. So Elijah goes to Ahab and at the command of God, he rebukes Ahab. Now, when he rebukes Ahab, he says, he, he, he identifies God, Jehovah, Yahweh, as the living God. That's going to be in the first few verses we read this morning. The living God. He wants Jezebel and Ahab, the leaders of this nation. By the way, Jezebel, Ahab is king. Jezebel wears the pants in that family. She calls the shots. Ahab's just, uh, he's just, uh, well, he needs to go to a men's conference. That's what he needs to do. He needs to just find Jesus and go to a men's conference. But so he rebukes them and he says, there's not going to be, he said, he said, I'm going to pray and there's going to be no rain, no rain until I pray again. Now his confidence in doing that is that he knows what God said in Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy. And in both of those places, God says, Israel, if you honor me, if you worship me, if you stay close to me, I will open up the heavens above you and your ground will produce great harvest. But he said in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, if you dishonor me and you turn away from me to worship false gods, I will close up the heavens above you. In Deuteronomy 28, he said, the ground will become like brass. You will grow no cotton. You will grow no grain. There will be no watermelons coming out of the ground. So Elijah says, until I pray again, there's going to be a drought. Here's what's interesting is Baal to the people who worshiped, <coughs> excuse me, this, by the way, that's allergies. I saw a t-shirt the other day that said, relax, Karen, it's only allergies. <laughs> I loved it. If it wasn't a girl's t-shirt, I would have bought it. Um, where was I before I got so rudely distracted? Elijah. So, okay, Baal. So Baal, for those who worship Baal, they worship Baal because they believe he is the God of the weather. He's the God of the heavens. He's the God of the atmosphere. He makes it rain. He makes the sunshine. He makes the stars and the, moons come, the moon come out. Uh, he's the God of new life because he produces life on the earth. And so that's the God they think they worship. So isn't it interesting that Elijah says, look, it's not going to rain until God tells me to pray and it rains again. You know what God's doing? He's showing the people that worship Baal, his own Israel, he's showing them, look, Baal can't do diddly. I'm the God of the atmosphere. I'm the God who says when it rains and it doesn't rain. So it's a showdown with God. Don't you find it interesting? Later, Elijah will, will call down fire from heaven and destroy 400-something prophets of Baal. Isn't it interesting where that fire falls from? The God of heaven. Because Baal couldn't like diddly squat on that altar that day. So Elijah is confronting this false god of Baal. There's also going to be a widow in this story. The widow would be poor most, most typically uh, because the, the, the breadwinner, the, the, the man would be working. She would be taking care of home and, and now she's got a son and her husband has passed and so she's now in the middle of this same famine and drought that Elijah and everybody else is in, and she's in a hardship. So we're going to see how God is faithful as she chooses to honor God. So uh, a few verses here. We're going to read a lengthy passage of Scripture here, but I wanted you to see the entire event as it unfolds. So 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 says, 
Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, there's that living God, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now nobody knows how long this famine is going to last. We know by reading the end of the story that it's about three years or a little over three years. And the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah. And God said to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So Elijah is going to be affected. The man of God is going to be affected by this same drought. He's going to pay $3.09 for gas. There's no clergy discount. He's going to pay the same for gas and bread and beef as everybody else does. In other words, he's going to be affected as everybody else will be. But God's got a plan for the man of God. So verse 5, so he went and he did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and he lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning. Ta-da! God shows up. And bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Elijah's doing just fine. $3.09 gas isn't bothering him at all. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Uh-oh. It just went to $4 a gallon. It's just getting crazy. Now the brook is dried up. So watch this. The Lord speaks to him again. Can I just, can I just toss this in? Learn how to hear the voice of God. Practice learning and discerning the voice of God. Because no matter what happens around us, when you hear from God, all is going to be just fine for you and for yours. The key is Elijah is hearing from God. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him. Now, arise and go to Zarephath, which can I tell you, Zarephath is the capital of Baal worship. It is like the core. It is like the capital region of the Baal worship. If you want to you be a full-on Baal person, you go to Zarephath. So he sends Elijah right there to the middle of the so-called God of the weather, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Seems odd. So he arose and he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow... He doesn't know which one, but a widow was there gathering sticks. So he puts out a test and he says, he called to her and he said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her, oh, and by the way, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Say, what? And she said, as the Lord your God lives, in fact, sir, in all honesty, I have nothing baked. I have only a handful of flour in a jar and a little in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I can go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She said, that's all I've got. I've got enough for one little small meal. Verse 13, and Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. So Elijah's not asking for everything she's got. He's just asking for a little piece. Is that little bit going to fill Elijah up? No, but he knows what's going to happen if she will do just that. If she will sow, he knows she's going to reap. So he's got to ask her. He's got to stretch her to sow. So she went and she did as Elijah said, and she and he and her and everybody else household ate for many days. It says, in fact, the jar of flour was never spent. It never ran out. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke through Elijah. So there's a principle here of sowing and reaping. We're going to gather three truths right here. So hold on tight. Here we go. The first truth out of all of this is this. God is first. God is first. It seems kind of presumptuous, doesn't it, that Elijah would say, oh, oh, really, you've only got enough for you and your son and then you're going to die. Pardon me, I shouldn't have asked for that. Seems almost presumptuous that he would demand that he give to her, she give to him first. But let's keep in mind something. Elijah is not God, but he is God's representative. He is the prophet of God who speaks on behalf of God. Now, I thought about that this week, and I thought right about here, people are going to think pastor's getting ready to take up a special offering for him because he is God's representative. No, no, 
I'm not there. I want you to understand when she gave to the prophet, she was giving to God because what the prophet is asking was commanded of him by God. So she's really giving to God. She's not giving to Elijah. Elijah's not going to be her blessing and her rescue. God is going to be. But God is represented through this prophet in this moment, Elijah. He is the prophet or representative of God. Elijah's name actually means Yahweh is my God. He's the man of God. But not when we learn. It's not, it doesn't seem presumptuous when we learn this law of what's called first things. And if you've been around here a while, I've taught on that principle several times. The law of first things. The law of first things in its simplest essence says this. The first of everything belongs to our God. It was established in the Old Testament when God said, look, you're going to be living amongst a bunch of pagans. And I'm going to ask you to give me the first 10% of your crops when they come up each year. Those people are going to look at you like you're crazy. What are you doing getting rid of the first 10? You need to sell that. You need to plant that again. You need to eat that because they don't understand this. But he said to show that I am God who takes care of you, you're to bring the first 10 of your crop. The first of every 10 of your herd belongs to me. The first born of your household belongs to me. Now, thankfully, they were not offered as sacrifices, but they were dedicated to God. The first of everything. Now, why does God, so somebody might say, well, that seems awfully presumptuous of this loving Father in heaven that he would require his people to give him the first and to do it first. And that might seem presumptuous until you really understand who God is. It's not presumptuous at all. It's a yearning. It's a longing. It becomes a desire. Because when you truly understand who God is, you realize all things were created by God. All things were created for God. In Him and through Him, all things exist, including you. Everything that we have, it's His. It's his. We only have it because he has provided it. You say, well, I work hard with my hands. Sure you do. Sure you do. But let's remember what God told the people of God in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, remember, Moses says, remember the Lord who gives you the strength and ability to work with your hands. It is he who has given that to you. So I will tell you this. Manna doesn't drop from heaven very often anymore like it did in the wilderness. So we do work. In fact, in the New Testament, we're told, look, if a man doesn't work, he, <laughs> he doesn't deserve to eat. If he can work and he doesn't work, he doesn't deserve to eat. So we work, but we have the ability to do what we do because that's what God put in us. We have jobs. We, we have open doors because God is the God who puts those and makes those things come into our reality. And so the bottom line of the first, the law of first things is the first of everything belongs to God. For God, it would, it's not that he's narcissistic or greedy in any fashion. What he knows is we need to know what we believe. Do we believe he is our Lord? If he's just an added on part of our life so that we can have religion and we can play soccer, but we can have religion too then that's never going to work. What he calls of us is that you know I am Lord. Jesus said, they call me Lord, but they don't do what I say. So how would God know? God knows our hearts. But how do we know if he's Lord? When we're willing to do what he says and not argue with him about whether it's a New Testament or an Old Testament, whether it's gross or net or whatever. When I got saved in 1981, I didn't know what tithing was. I was working in a construction company, got my first paycheck. Meemaw said, now you, give, you need to give God 10% of that. Okie dokie. Had not read Malachi. Had, didn't even ask why. I just, okay, so if, that, if that's what he asked of me, then yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I've never questioned it. I've never questioned it. Now in whatever, 40, 40 years, going on 41 years. The law of first things is everything belongs to God, and all he asks from us is the first part of it. Put him first. 
So where does this, where does this land us out of the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus lays it on pretty heavy for us in the Sermon on the Mount. In one part of it, verse 33, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. Keep in mind, if you read all of the first verses above that, Jesus is talking about food, clothing. In our modern day, it would be fuel and electricity and this and that that it takes to live life. He's saying, look, don't worry about those things. You want to stop worrying about it? Put God first. Seek his kingdom, his principles, his laws, his truth first. And he will give to you as well. That's not Old Testament. That's from the mouth of Jesus. If anybody was New Testament, it was Jesus, right? By the way, what is the root of all evil? The love. The love of money. Money's not evil. It's the love. It's the separation in my heart that says, I love God over here, but don't touch my stuff. That's where we get into trouble. That's a divided heart. Again, in Matthew 6, verse 21, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Giving to God, the law of first things, putting God first, it's an issue of the heart. That's all it is. It's an issue of my heart. And then in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Watch this. You cannot serve both God and money. One's going to be Lord, and the other one's going to be subservient to the Lord. You're either going to love money above God and you're going to become subservient to money, which means you're going to work like a mug. And as the Old Testament would say, you're going to put it in pockets with holes in it. And you're going to wonder every week, where did it go? Because you're serving money. God first. Your heart set on God first. It's just there. It's just there. 35 years now that we've been married, we have faithfully tithed. We've given our, our 10%, and, and when God asks for some other, we've done that as obediently as we knew how. We've never had manna drop from heaven, but we're always taken care of. When it comes time, it's It's there. It's there. It's kind of like people say, well, we can't afford to get married yet. Well, you can never afford to get married. What'd you do? You just went ahead and got married, and somehow, there it was. We can't afford to have a baby. You have a baby, you find out it was there all along. It, it's, you just, God is that kind of faithful God. Putting Him first in our pursuits, passions, and purpose unlocks the key of His provision into our daily lives. When everything around us is going chaotic and crazy in the economy, God will provide for us if we walk with his principles, one of which is put God first. When we put God first, we're going to find God is faithful, which is the second truth out of this event with Elijah and the widow today. God is faithful. You see, Elijah's living off of the same land as everyone else. It's, it's drought-stricken, the brook dries up, and he's feeling the same effects as everybody else. The widow is feeling the same effects as everyone else. Both of them are without any other resource except God. There's no place to find food and water except God. And they're going to find that by putting God first, both of them find God to be faithful. When you obey God and you put Him first, you find that you will always have what you need. It's, I don't know how to explain it. It's just, it, it is just there. Think about this widow. So it says until the drought ended, which we know to be three years, her jar of oil and flour never ran dry. Now there's no place to go buy it and find it, but every time she goes to make a cake for her and her son, and by the way, we're not talking birthday cake. We're talking substance. We're talking what they have to eat to live off of. When she goes to make it, it's there. She pours the oil, boom, there it is. How about the other instance when, when the prophet went to the, to the lady and, and she was out of oil and he, he says, go gather all the jars that you can. 
and start pouring your little bit of oil into each one of those jars. And before she knew it, she had tons of jars filled with oil, and she started with just a little itty bit. But every time she poured, it kept coming. What about the disciples when Jesus feeds 5,000? He took two fish, five loaves of bread, broke it into pieces, and put it in the hands of 12 disciples. They went around handing it to 5,000 plus their, their wives and children, so probably close to 20,000. And every time Peter reached down to grab another piece of fish, boom, there was another piece of fish. Every time he went to grab a piece of bread for Josiah, boom, there's a piece of bread. Every time there's a piece of fish, oh, there's another piece of I don't know where it's coming from. And they had what? Twelve baskets left over. It's just there. It's just there. God is good. So Paul assures us in this, and again, he's talking about financial investment in the kingdom. And he says, and my God, he's talking to the church in Philippi, that if they will give these offerings to help these other churches, he says this, my God will meet all of your needs according to his riches, the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He's saying, yes, church in Philippi, you guys are in a hardship. But if you'll, if you'll invest, if you'll give to God in this work of his kingdom to these other churches, particularly the church in Macedonia that was in great poverty, he said, God will make sure all of your needs are met. We could go across this auditorium and through the years, 26 years, I've heard testimonies of some of our uh, faithful older generation of folks. And man, I wish, I wish Paul Whaley, our dear friend, was, was, was still with us in a sense. I mean, he's rejoicing in heaven now. But Paul talked about how as a, as a, as a young man starting his own business as an engineer, and he grew that business to become very, very successful. He became a civil engineer for many of our local communities, the city of Burleson, the city of Joshua, and many other ways. But he said God challenged him, not that God would tell all of us to do this, but in his business, not only the money he made and that he was given as his part of running his business, but his business, Whaley Engineers, was to take 10% and give it to the Lord as a tithe. But here's how God told him to do it. Pay the 10%, give me the 10% before it comes in. In other words, Paul would send an invoice out and it would be a 60, a 30 or 60 day repayment. As soon as he sends the invoice, he said, God told him I was to, to give 10% of that up front. And Paul would always ask me when he knew I was going to be talking about giving and doing a series, Pastor, can I tell something to these young people? Some of you remember that. He'd always say, Lord, uh, Pastor, can I say something to, to the young generation? And just, there's, there's stories of that, of it, of it just being there. Just God doing what God does. Now, do I have to work? Absolutely. Do I have to manage the other 90? Oh, absolutely. Here's what God dropped in my spirit earlier this week. We can never outgive God. You've heard me say that. We can never outgive God, but we can outspend Him. We can never outgive Him. But if we're poor managers of what's left, we can't outspend him. Some people say, I tithed and I went bankrupt. Well, you didn't go bankrupt because you tithed. You went bankrupt because you didn't know what to do with the other 90. These verses that Paul gives us here about God meeting your need, they were about giving, giving into Paul's ministry, tithing. Tithing is given the first 10% of my income to the Lord. And somehow God takes the 90, and I know our testimony is he has always been faithful to get the 90 where it needed to be to make absolute provision for our lives. We're not millionaires. We don't live in a mansion. We don't live in a gated country club community. But our needs have always been met. We believe. We believe in the principle of the tithe. His unchanging, undeniable law of sowing and reaping, giving and receiving is true. The third truth we find from this event this morning is God is fundamental. He is not only first, he is not only faithful, but he's fundamental. 
in the economy of man of this earth, God is fundamental. You find in the Old Testament that oftentimes when God would choose to bring judgment on his people, one of the things that was affected first was their economy. If they thought they could make it without God, God would let them learn they couldn't go very far without him. They couldn't go far without him. God is fundamental. Let me define for you the word fundamental just from the dictionary. It means this, forming a necessary base or a core. When something or someone is fundamental, they, they, it makes up the base. To say God is fundamental in the economy means God is the very base, the very foundation of our economy. He is creator, all things created by him for him. He is the base. He is the core at the center of economy that works. Secondly, it means relating to the essential nature of. If something is fundamental, it's, it's, it's second nature. It is, it is fundamental to, uh, to the nature of. And to say that God is provider is to say it's God's nature to provide. It's God's nature to provide. And then another part of the definition is fundamental. to be fundamental is to be a central or primary rule or principle on which something is based. In other words, some unchanging laws that never change. So I took that definition. I want to give you a definition of what I mean when I say God is fundamental. To say God is fundamental is to say God's supernatural provision and blessing is based on his nature and the primary laws of giving and receiving. God is fundamental to our economy. Both Elijah and the widow are going to have to rely on God for their provision. They're not going to be able to trust anything or anyone else. Their resources have run out and they've got nowhere else to turn. They have to trust God. We have financial advisors. We have financial software programs, financial planning, and all of that is healthy and it's helpful. But it must include God's principles of economy. God first, God faithful. God fundamental. Otherwise, we find ourselves working ourselves ragged to make our financial plan work. Let me give you two scriptures, two passages of scripture, one from the old, one from the new. And we'll start bringing in for a landing here. Malachi chapter 3, probably familiar to most of us. Malachi is prophet of God. He's speaking on behalf of God, but man, Malachi's a tough one. It's a lot of rebuke to where the nation of Israel was. They were in a state of apathy. They were not moving forward. They were in a position of apathy. Relationships were just laissez-faire, come and go. They were denying God. They were at one point, God even rebuked them because they were bringing one-legged or three-legged lambs to God when they had nice four-legged lambs sitting in their herd. They were bringing, bringing blind goats when they had goats that had 20-20 vision. He says, why are you giving me the leftovers? Why are you giving me the ones that aren't going to be worth anything? Is that who I am to you, he says. And then in Malachi 3, God speaks to the prophet and he says, will a mortal man rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, well, how are we robbing you? He says, it's in tithes and it's in offerings. Oh, okay. Verse 9, he says, you're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Remember, he had always told them, the first of everything belongs to me. Malachi 3, now verse 10. He says this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough for it. We don't give to get, but throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, God assures us that giving produces receiving. Jesus backed it up. Paul backed it up. God backs it up. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and then test me. Just do it and see if I don't show up. And he says, I will throw open the floodgates of heaven pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough for it. Now that blessing can come in many different ways. It can, it can be many different ways. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, financially. 
But I do know the principle of sowing and reaping, what we sow, we reap. So it does include financial blessing. Doesn't mean I'm not talking prosperity and pie in the sky, but I'm just saying that when he flows open the third floodgates of heaven, that jar of oil is never going to run out. It's just you're going to have what you need. It's going to be there. And then verse 11, watch what he says. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. In other words, those things that are robbing you economically, that $3.09 gas, that beef, whatever. I saw some news story last night. I didn't want to even listen to it. I just saw it on the news talking about beef prices. I don't know, whatever. What he's saying is those things that are devouring your crops, devouring your finances, he says, they will not drop their fruit. He says, I will rebuke those things that devour. What's Elijah and the widow experiencing? God is rebuking the devourer of this drought. What does he do when I'm faithful to honor him first? You see, the law of first things, I should have mentioned this, the law of first things is about lordship. It's about his lordship. To be lord means he's first. He's first. So what is tithing? Tithing is proportional, systematic giving. It's that simple. The word tithe, it, it, it means ten. It doesn't mean two or three or five or twelve. It means ten. And what God is saying is take ten. The first ten of your increase is a tithe. Now notice what Malachi, what God spoke to Malachi. He said bring the whole tithe. He didn't say, I'm going to throw open the floodgates at 2% or 5%. Now, hear me out. I'm not chastising anybody. Just tell them, I want you to see what God's Word says. He says, bring the whole tithe. So where does the floodgate... I've had people say, Pastor, I tried tithing, and I didn't find the blessings of God. Well, one, you, you're dressed this morning when you showed up, and you had breakfast. So I'd say God's on your side somewhere in there. But was it a whole tithe? Was it a whole tithe? And tithe means first. Was it the first? Or did you give God the lifter? I wish I had time. How many of you have seen my illustration where I have the big, huge, fake $100 bills? Anybody? Raise your hand if you've seen that illustration. So I should have tried to do that. I'll pull that one out here one of these days. But it means the first redeems everything else. What I have left now comes under the influence of God's blessing. So it's proportional. God's not asking us to give anything we don't have. He's not asking us to give 110% of our money, which means give him everything and then trust him for another 10. No, the tithe is just simply that. If I made $100 this week, all he wants is 10. First, let me know that I mean more to you than money does. Just bring the 10. And it's 10 I already have, right? It was auto-dropped into my account Friday. So it's the, he's, that's all he's asking from is what he's already blessed us with. So it's proportional, but it's also systematic. It's tithing is as I receive increase. When I receive, in, when I receive pay, that's increase to me. That's money I didn't have dropped in my account the week before. So it's 10% of my increase, what God has already blessed me with. So now I want you to watch Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians as he's writing again about the giving of offerings to the work of God's kingdom. He says this, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So he's telling all of his churches, Philippi, Corinth, Galatia. He says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Well, looky there. Paul's instruction is proportionate, and systematic. Proportionate in that he says, give a sum in keeping with your income. In other words, I'm going to give something different than Tom gives because my 10 looks different than Tom's 10 because Tom's increase was different than my increase. So he's not saying give what everybody else is giving. Don't give it the same level. He says in keeping with your income. So there's the proportional part of New Testament giving. And then here's the systematic part. He says, each week, set aside. Each week. What's the system? Every seven days when I get paid, boom. Set aside a sum 
of what I've been given and blessed with to give in the offering. Ta-da! There's systematic and proportional giving in the New Testament. Mic drop. Case closed. Moving forward in spiritual growth, we're discovering for Victory Family Church that requires looking forward, dreaming the dreams of God that He puts in our heart, praying those things now to come into reality, putting faith into action to step forward and move forward with Him. And it means that for this coming year and things God wants to do, we've got to stay faithful. We've got to stay faithful. Remember the Malachi 3.10, bring it into the storehouse for what reason? That there may be food. How did they feed the poor? Out of the storehouses of the temple. How did they take care of taking care of the temple? Out of the resources. So food means resource. That there may be resources in my house. Victory Family Church, we, uh, we simply are here today because people are faithful to take God at His word. We don't get money from the government. We do not get any money from our denomination. I've told you that before. We give money to our denomination. We don't get money from them to underwrite the ministries of this church. Every single thing including turning on lights and feeding people once a month through the food ministry. Now, 98% of that is given to us. It's donated to us by the Tarrant Food Bank. But all the resources that go with that, we spent $16,000. We invested $16,000 of our own church finance last year in, I'm sorry, $14,000 uh, in Victory Cares Ministry. And that was with all the food being donated, most of it. We buy the, we buy the beef. Uh, when it's available to us. Um, all of that, all of that is just through the giving of people who believe in what God is doing through the mission and vision of Victory Family Church to reach this community for Christ, not for ourselves, but for the mission and ministry of Christ as we all prepare and are preparing others around us for the return of Christ. So I'm not trying to put a hard sell on anybody. What I trust is that perhaps laying out some of the truth from God's word stirs our hearts to, to take God at his word and to, to trust God at his word. He says, test me, give it a shot. Give it a shot. But not because you want to prove him or test him, but because you want to worship him. Back when we used to have the offering where we could pass it around, you know, now COVID and germs and all that would do the boxes. But there was a, a long season of time that every Sunday when I would say, hey, it's time to receive the Lord's tithe and offering, we clapped. We clapped. As an expression of our hearts of the joy of giving to the Lord what we know He has so graciously given to us. 